So we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. So remember, we've, we've seen Jesus is superior to Israel's greatest prophet, Moses. He's superior over the angels. Jesus is superior to the, to the, to the priest of Israel. The, the, the whole sacrificial system uh, was looking forward to Jesus, showing he is, he is the fulfillment of that. Uh, Jesus is superior to Melchizedek. And we just looked at the, talked about Melchizedek last time. In fact, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 mentions him. And so we come to this passage now today where it's, it's a warning. It's a very serious warning passage. And the, the author of, of Hebrews, I don't, but other than the Holy Spirit, I don't know who the human author is, by the way. But whoever it is has, has a serious warning for these people who can't seem to really understand Melchizedek and what he's all about. So he's going to kind of make a little, it, it's not a rabbit trail, but it is, it is, a, it's, it's kind of coming off the main trail, okay? So he's just talked about Melchizedek in verse 10. He's going to pick up again with Melchizedek in chapter 7. But meanwhile, he needs a serious warning to people with dull ears. And here's what God wants us to, to uh, get from the passage today, the propositions on the screen. That God wants you to be spiritually mature. That's what He wants of His children. He wants His children to be spiritually mature. Just like earthly parents, we want our children to grow up. We, uh, you know, we're, we're glad that they're not, you know, if, you know, if, if they get off the milk bottle, we're happy for that. You know, we're, we're glad that we're not constantly changing nappies anymore. Praise God for that. Um, you know, we're, we're glad they're, you know, we can have a nice conversation with our children and they're able to help around the house and the, the farm and so forth, right? Those, those are blessings of God. But today we're going to see God's warning about spiritual immaturity. A very serious warning here in Hebrews 5. Look at verse 11. These are the words of the living God in verse 11. And he says, about this. And the this is referring to Melchizedek. He says, about this we have much to say. And he will in chapter 7. But he says, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's warning us about spiritual immaturity here. He's going to show us how we can be spiritually mature, but we we need to understand the problem to start with. So let's look at the problem of spiritual immaturity. So remember, this passage is coming in the greater context of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews has has just mentioned Melchizedek back in verse 10, and he's about to compare Christ's ministry to Melchizedek in chapter 7. But he remembers that many of his hearers have grown, well, they've not grown enough, if you will. They haven't grown enough spiritually to be able to grasp and understand what he's about to tell them about Melchizedek. So thus, in verse 11 here, he's issuing this warning to spiritually immature people. So you say, well, what's the problem? Why are they described as spiritually immature? Well, verse 11 says they're spiritually lazy, basically. They're spiritually lazy. And you say, well, how did they get to that point? Okay, again, let's back up. There's other warning passages in Hebrews that tell us how they got to this point. So I'll put the scriptures up here on the screen for you. And we saw back in Hebrews chapter 2, they got there because it started by drifting. They drifted from their moorings. They drifted from the Word of God, the Scriptures. They should have remained attached to Christ. They should have kept striving toward the goal. (laughs) They should have kept rowing, paddling, but they didn't. And it's like being on the Waikato River. If you don't keep paddling upstream, the stream is going to take you downstream. You will backslide. And that's exactly what's happened to these people. They have drifted from the Word. And that leads to the next warning passage, Hebrews 3, which says, then you, then they started to doubt the Word of God. So if you don't, if you don't keep striving and rowing, you will drift and that leads to doubting. And then as a result, as we see here, they have now dull ears. They became dull of hearing. The idea is they're unable to now even listen to the Word of God. They're not able to receive the Word of God, and therefore they can't act on the Word of God. So that's the process we've seen going on here in the book of Hebrews. And I, By the way, I hope you, you, you take heed to those warnings because the same thing could happen in your life. You say, well, that'll never happen to me. Oh yeah, take heed lest you fall. Scripture says, and it all starts with just taking the hands off the oars, stop paddling, stop rowing, and just take a rest. That's all you have to do. You say, man, this Christian life is this is hard. I'm tired of fighting the flesh and Satan in this world. It, it's really hard. I'm going to take a rest. That's all you have to do. Take a moment of rest, and, you, and there you go. You start drifting. And before you know it, you're dull of hearing. And that phrase, by the way, dull of hearing, is is an idiom. It literally means lazy as to one's ears. The, it's, it's Sometimes it's translated as you are slow to learn. The implication, by the way, there is that you're lazy. You're lazy. And so, my friends, we need to watch out. We need to beware. Guard our own hearts. Because one of the first symptoms of backsliding here is, is a dullness toward the Bible, a dullness toward the Bible. See, what happens is Bible study becomes dull. You you lose interest in reading the Bible, and then preaching becomes dull, and then anything spiritual whatsoever just becomes dull. The problem is usually not with the pastor. It's certainly not with the Scriptures, but it's with the believer himself. Your heart becomes hard. Your ears become dull. And so how does this happen? Well, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight because verse 11, notice verse 11 says, these people developed this condition. It's a long-term process. The text says, you have become. You have become. Now, in the Greek, it's a little more clear, to me at least it is. 
The problem here was an inquired condition. It's characterized by an inability to listen to spiritual truth. You, you, you don't have the ability to, to actually hear spiritual truth. Now, these people were not naturally slow. Uh, the, the idea here is not that they were intellectually deficient. It's not that they didn't have ears. It's not that they didn't have a brain. It's not that they didn't have the receivers to hear words. But they had become spiritually lazy. They had become unreceptive. They were closed. They didn't start out this way as dull of hearing, but they became this way gradually. That's the idea in the Greek language here. So spiritual laziness is kind of, I don't know how to describe this. Uh, it's kind of like an old man's hearing. So at least one of us here has hearing aids, right? So I'm not, by the way, cut that part out because I'm not calling you old. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, I've seen this happen with a lot of people in their 80s and 90s, for example. You know, they're just, they're out of the conversations that you have with, you know, it's going on in the house because they can't actually hear you. They see mouths moving, but they don't hear. And it's just a long, slow process where, you know, they had great ears when they were children, but over time and over neglect, you know, loud noises and so forth, eventually the hearing just slowly fades away to the point where they can't hear much of anything. And and that's kind of like what's going on here spiritually. <laughs> you say, well, what about us then? What, what about me? Well, as we hear God's Word, you have to watch out for this. You need to beware because... There's things you can do to help yourself, right? Uh, for example, you know, one simple thing is keep your Bible open. <laughs> uh, try to uh, try to follow the textual argument as you hear the word preached and as you're reading the word. Look for the references that are mentioned. Take notes if you're able to do that. Try to identify the theme. Usually, I put it up there for you. But and then um, and then all usually I try to list the points. But you know, these are things you can do for yourself. Try to think of, how can I apply this to my own life? You know, if you're not doing those, those very things, it's easy to become lazy in the ears. You're just kind of constantly receiving, but you, you need to be thinking it's more than that. And if you don't do that, eventually uh, you can be self-condemned to the point you become a perpetual infant, spiritually speaking. So the problem is they were dull of hearing. They were slow to learn. They became spiritually lazy. It was a condition that happened over a long period of time. Eventually, it gets to verse 12 here, and we see that that now they're not even able to teach themselves. They're not able to share God's Word. And by the way, this is their own fault. It wasn't the teacher's fault. (laughs) You say, well, why? Because notice verse 12 says, they had been taught the basic principles of God. So when you see the the elementary, the oracles of God, it's talking about just basic principles of God. The ability to share spiritual truth with others is a mark of maturity. Someone who is spiritually mature is able to share God's Word, speak into people's lives, give them biblical wisdom to to help them in, in, in the various areas of their life. But these people aren't able to do that. Because they drifted from the Word, they started doubting God's Word, and now now, now they're just spiritually lazy. Well, not all Christians have the gift of teaching, of course, but everybody, every one of us, should be able to share what we're learning from the Bible. You don't have to be a, a gifted teacher to do that. But see, we here, here's the problem. Now they're not able to teach. They're not even able to share God's Word because they're not learning. And then we also see in verse 12, they needed to be taught the basics again. See, the problem is, if you don't use it, you lose it. That happens in a lot of areas of life. You don't use it, you lose it, right? That's what's going on here. Verse 12, baby. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. What are the basics it's talking about? You say, well, these are the basic principles, kind of like the the ABCs of the Christian life, right? When you started school or, you know, maybe maybe you're more intelligent than 
other people, and you already knew the ABCs before you started school. But that's the idea here. Just you, you don't just go and pick up a book as an infant and start reading it. It doesn't happen. So you got to learn the, the basics, right? You got to got to know what A is and B and C, and you got to know the the alphabet so that you can read words, and then you're able to read sentences and so forth. That's where it starts. So the idea here is this is referring to the basic truths of God's word. Well, at first, the Hebrew believers here had listened to the main things. They had learned them. However, they weren't using them. They weren't using them. And so they eventually lost them. So, like I said, the saying came true here. If you don't use it, you lose it. In other words, truth heard, but if it's not internalized, if you don't maintain that truth, it's going to be lost to the hearer. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. I've asked myself these questions this last week. Hey, do I know the basic truths well enough to be able to help others? Do I know the basic truths well enough to be able to help others? That'll show, am I on the right path? Am I spiritually mature or not? Another question to think about, am I hard to teach because I've become lazy in the ears? Another question to think about, am I a growing Christian? If you're not growing, then you got some serious questions to ask of yourself. God expects us to be a growing Christian. So that's the problem the book of Hebrews presents. Basically, they had drifted from the Word, they doubted God's Word, and now they're dull of hearing. They're spiritually lazy. And so you might ask, well, what causes this? Well, Hebrews addresses the cause of spiritual immaturity. And I want you to notice before we... We've already read the passage, but it's interesting here in these verses. The author, to, to me, it seems like he's resorting to sarcasm to get his point across. He wants to stir his readers to spiritual growth, and in this case, he uses sarcasm. I mean, this is serious, sobering stuff. He's assaulting his friends with a ridiculous image, if you think about it. The image is this, is you have a... You have an adult infant. I almost put some some pictures up on the screen of adult infants that's all over Google. It's hilarious when you see these photos of grown men, you know, who are sucking their thumbs and, you know, sucking on milk bottles and so forth, right? It, it's funny uh, on Google images, but in real life it's not funny. These adult infants were still nursing, and that's a tragedy. In the spiritual realm, it's a tragedy. Here we have full-grown men and women. They're still wearing nappies or diapers, whatever you want to call them. Spiritually speaking, they don't desire solid food, and so they sit around all day sucking their thumbs, like infants do. Well, maybe yours don't, but some do. And this is sad. It's incredibly sad. These full-grown infants are now a disgrace to God, and they're a drain on the church because they're not doing what what God wants them to do. And obviously, the the writer's ridiculous image here is is meant to shock. It's meant to motivate the hearers to, hey, get the thumb out of the mouth. And uh, (laughs) did any of you as a child ever do this? uh, It's funny when children, they don't, some children, they want to be mature. And they don't like it when someone tells them, you're a baby. A lot of us don't like hearing that. I didn't like hearing that when I was younger. And what do you say when somebody says, hey, you're a baby? You say, I'm not a baby. We don't like to hear that. I'm not a baby. You know, we like to think of ourselves more mature than we are sometimes. And so we got to get the thumbs out of the mouth and basically say, I'm not a baby. So what's the cause of spiritual immaturity? Glad you asked. Hebrews tells us. Number one, he says in verse 12, First cause of spiritual immaturity is a lack of growth. (laughs) Duh, right? I know it's kind of obvious. But that's what the, the text says in verse 12. For by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So again, the language here is is warning us against regression. 
going backwards. In fact, it literally reads like this. You have become having need of milk. And by the way, the word milk there is representing this beginning level of instruction. Just the basics. Sadly, they had begun to eat solid food earlier. The text says they had, they got to the point where they could eat solid food. In other, this higher level instruction from God's word. But now they're not able to handle that. Because remember, they, they drifted from God's word. They doubted God's word. And now they're dull of hearing. They're spiritually lazy. And so my friends, here's the truth. There's no such thing as a static Christian. Uh, the idea is uh, you're either moving forward or you're falling back. See, we're either climbing or we're falling. It's kind of like walking. Maybe you haven't done this, but I've seen at least one of my children do this. You ever go the wrong way on an escalator? Right? You, 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 if you just try standing and doing nothing when you're going the wrong way on an escalator, what happens? You go backwards, right? You got to keep moving just to stay in one spot. If you stop, it goes, right? That, that's the idea here, spiritually speaking. You're either moving forward or you're falling back. You're climbing or falling. You're winning or losing. Static Christianity is, it's a delusion. It's not reality. So here's some application for you to think about. Number one, don't drift. <laughs> don't drift. Don't allow yourself to drift. Don't, don't take the hands off the wheel. Don't, don't stop rowing. Don't stop paddling. Keep moving forward. Keep pressing on toward heaven. The race is not done yet. You haven't crossed the finish line yet. <laughs> so what causes spiritual immaturity? We see, first of all, a lack of growth. These people are still sucking their thumbs, sucking on the milk bottle, instead of eating solid food. Verse 13 tells us, number two, they are unskilled in God's Word. They're unskilled in God's Word. Notice it says, verse 13, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the Word of righteousness, since he is a child. So what causes one to be unskilled in God's Word? Well, the answer is found in that phrase. I, I, well, I find it helpful, the phrase, the Word of Righteousness. What's that? Well, the Word of Righteousness can be understood in two ways. Uh, you can think of it doctrinally as well as practically. Now, I think it's referring to both doctrinal as well as practical. So let me explain myself. Those who move beyond the milk stage and feed on the meat of God's Word must first have this clear doctrinal understanding of the righteousness of God. Uh, Think of it, righteousness. The word right is in there. You're, You're right with God. You need to understand they are so radically sinful. You need to understand you're so radically sinful that your own works couldn't possibly save you. That's pretty basic to Christianity. And then, therefore, your only hope, then, is you need a gift of righteousness. The the gift of righteousness comes from God through Christ. However, if one is then to increasingly feed on the solid word, there has to be more than that just doctrinal understanding of righteousness. You have to move beyond that. Get practical. So there, there needs to be a practical righteousness. In other words, you have to live a holy life. And, and the two go together, by the way. What, what you believe is always going to affect what you do. So there needs to be this doctrinal as well as practical aspect of righteousness, which will enable one to feed then more and more on the solid food of the Word of God. So that's how they're unskilled in God's Word. And that's why they lack this growth. Now, you might at this point say, well, what if I intellectually understand the doctrine of righteousness? But I'm still not growing in God's Word. What next? What do I do next? You say, I I understand I need to be right with God. I understand uh, that I could not earn the righteousness of God on my own. I I need this righteousness imputed to me from God through Christ. 
So intellectually, I understand that, but I'm, but I'm not growing in God's Word. Well, maybe the answer is you need to confess your sins and ask for God's help in experiencing righteous living. And maybe you need to live a godly life. Maybe you need to apply what you know. <laughs> okay, Don't be just a hearer only, but do the Word as well so that you can grow. See, it's not just what you know. you gotta, you got to do it. you got to live it. Otherwise, you, you can become unskilled in God's Word. You say, okay, all right, great. Hebrews shows me the problem of, of the spiritual immaturity. I, I see that. I'd like to know what the cure is. Well, isn't it good that God's Word gives us the cure for spiritual immaturity? Right there in verse 14. So think of it this way, my friends. Verse 14 puts it this way. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Think of a little baby. Uh, A nursing baby has little or no capacity to distinguish good from evil. (laughs) That's why you got to constantly watch them, right? Easy for a little infant baby to get themselves in trouble. And only the mature are going to be able to discern, have this discerning judgment, particularly in this case, talking about the moral issues of life. So how do we move from being like an infant who is immature to being mature, where you're now able to discern good from evil? How do you get to that point? Well, the text tells us you have to feed on God's Word. First of all, feed on God's Word. That's what it means by solid food. You're moving beyond the basic principles. You're getting into to so, some deeper stuff. So a holy life that feeds on the solid food of God's Word is then going to be able to, to know the difference between good and evil. And that's going to take work on your part. See, you're, you're going to... You, you don't have a USB port in your brain, right? You're going to have to read, <laughs> the Bible. You're going to have to study it, meditate upon it day and night so that you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. So praise God for mature believers who do this. I'm very thankful for those of you who who are spiritually mature. You're a huge blessing to your family. You're a huge blessing to the church. No no pastor or shepherd wants to constantly go around sticking milk bottles in people's mouths. That's that's a drain. It's a drain on me. It's a drain on you. It doesn't help the church. You ought to be teaching other people, sharing God's Word, helping other people, but you yourselves need help. So I'm thankful for mature believers who could be a help to the family and, and the church. You know, one of the things you do when you're a mature believer is you help other people from these pitfalls. Because you can discern between good and evil. You have biblical wisdom to help you through your life. And you're able to give words of life to other people. So again, some application to think about is don't just settle for the basic principles from God's Word. Have a desire to go deep. Go deep into God's Word. Uh, yeah, by all means, don't forget the basics. Don't forget, to, you know, that you're you're a sinner. God's holy, and Christ paid the penalty for your sin. He died, was buried, rose again. You know those basic things. But don't just settle for those basics. Don't just settle for spiritual milk. I hope you have a desire for meat, the meat of God's word. Strive to become a theologian, one who knows. Uh, the, the entire counsel of God. So you have to feed on God's word, one. And number two, develop discernment. But notice the text says, how do you do this? It's by constantly applying God's word. Constantly applying God's word. So the readers here didn't know and understand the truth because they had not applied themselves to it. So the solution here is found in developing spiritual senses and it only happens through practice. It happens through practice. Or, uh, as my Bible says, through training. The training they needed involved a steady application of spiritual discipline. Spiritual maturity is not just 
It just, it, it doesn't happen suddenly. It comes from constant training. It's kind of like living the Christian life is, is very demanding. It demands the spiritual skills that you might see in a long distance runner. See, a long distance runner's developed stamina. He's developed the endurance to, to run marathons or these Ironmans or whatever else they, people do. You know, you don't go from being a couch potato to an Ironman or marathon runner just in one day. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it's a lot of training and, and practice to get to that point. Uh, I, I know, because I've kind of been a couch potato after my surgery for several months. And now I'm starting to get back into running again. And oh, man. You know, it's like the first day you get out of bed after three months of surgery, right? You're, it's, I'll run to my letterbox and back. You know, it's about all you can handle. It's like, ooh, turning on the remote on the TV. I can do that. But, you know, forget the marathon. That ain't going to happen. It, it demands stamina. It's a spiritual skill. And so my friend's relentless application of Christian truth and in practice is, is going to equip you for a lifetime of usefulness. Now, please understand that God wants His children to grow up. We've already made the statement, God wants you to be spiritually mature. Now, that doesn't mean He doesn't like babies. <laughs> right? We, we love babies. God likes babies. But He wants His babies to grow up, to progress toward maturity. And that's why when He comes into chapter 6, He says, go on to maturity. Go on to maturity. By the way, chapter divisions are not inspired. And so you see a therefore in chapter 6. So he's just, just keep that in mind in the previous context. And so he goes on to then call these readers to spiritual maturity. But he presents a challenge to start with. And the challenge comes in a, in a negative and a positive. First of all, he says, don't go backwards. The challenge is, first of all, don't go backwards. Look what he says, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And he explains kind of what that looks like, some things they were dealing with there in chapter, verse 1 and 2. So, we'll talk about those in a moment. But the Hebrews here were to leave these basic teachings about Christ. Again, these are the ABCs of Christian doctrine, which are mentioned there in verses 1 and 2. Now, there are six statements about elementary doctrine, and it's interesting, they seem to be grouped together. There's three couplets here. Notice in verse 1, the first couplet here includes repentance and faith. So the hearers were called to progress beyond the teaching this need to repent of works which lead to death. Instead, it says, respond in faith to God's provision in Christ. So, I'm not totally sure on what all this was about. Uh, it's, it's a little vague in the text here, but it seems the readers may have been playing around with sin, and maybe they had, had avoided a full commitment to Christ. Kind of like sitting on the fence, spiritually speaking. Or at least they were tempted to go back to their Judaism. And some of these things sound very much like Judaism. The second couplet here describes external rituals, which certainly happened within Judaism. First of all, you have instruction about washings. It refers to teaching about the importance of baptism. It also referred to the types of washings that were familiar to the Jews. Now you need to understand, the Hebrew people often use ritual washings as a part of their spiritual routine. That's why you got the Pharisees attacking Jesus' disciples, <laughs> because they're not doing all these spiritual routines. Well, perhaps the readers wanted to hold on to their ritual washings. Uh, another one they wanted to hold on to was the laying on of hands. That often related to the conferring of special gifts. It was an action that accompanied blessing, uh, often uh, accompanied the healing of sick people, 
they would lay hands for the ordination of church leaders. It was also involved in the gift of the Spirit. So laying on of hands was accompanying those things. And so the writer here is concerned about these Hebrew people being too absorbed in these external rituals. It doesn't mean it's a sin necessarily to do them in and of themselves, but he didn't want them to be too absorbed in that. It became too important. It was holding them back. The third couplet is mentioned there. Verse 2, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Uh, Both of those are referring to future events. Uh, Important doctrines, yes, but they're not the only doctrines. (laughs) It seems like these, these people had parked here and didn't want to learn about the other doctrines. While these things are important, it's also important you go on to to get the whole counsel of God. So these six issues contained in spiritual truth—they they contain spiritual truths which Christians need to understand. However, these basic truths and here—they—they're just basic truths. Okay, so the writer wanted his readers to move beyond those basic truths. Judaism had some of these same doctrines, and probably the readers here weren't uh, looking different enough, weren't differing greatly in their beliefs from the non-Christian Jews, and so they're called to a mature understanding. Grow up. Become spiritually mature. So the challenge is, first of all, he says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. But notice the positive there in verse 1. The positive aspect is go on to maturity in Christ. Go on to push yourself. Let God push you to maturity in Christ. When the Hebrews needed to move beyond the basic understanding of Christianity, they also needed to go on to maturity. And that means they needed to desire the growth which only God could give them. By the way, you'll see in verse 3, where where does this come from? Verse 3 says, And this we will do if God permits. You're not going to grow spiritually unless God enables you to do that. God's the one who permits that to happen. So in order to do that, they must be totally committed to God and His Word. A total commitment, by the way, notice, number one, involves leaving and cleaving. It involves a putting off and a putting on. It involves forsaking and an embracing. Often you get the negative and the positive aspects in Scripture. The problem is fence-sitters don't do both. (laughs) They're they're trying to do both in some way or another, but fence-sitters don't do both because fence-sitters aren't committed. That's why they're sitting on the fence. But God expects a radical commitment He's telling these people, get off the fence, get committed, totally committed. And then the Scriptures give us a caution in verses 4 and 5. These are hard, hard words to understand for some people. But look what verse 4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, there's many interpretations on this passage. Let me give you some of them. And I'll tell you why I don't agree with some of them. And then I'll tell you the one I agree with. Okay, But the first one is that some people believe that a true Christian can lose their salvation. Now that's an interesting interpretation, because if you can lose your salvation, it's also saying then you can't get it back. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, of course that interpretation goes against uh, other clear portions of Scripture. Right? The Bible says that when God saves, He keeps. He keeps. I like the way John says it. So whenever somebody is maybe doubting their salvation or, or, you know, there's this belief you can lose your salvation, I love going to John 10. I'll put it on the screen here. I think this is, 
my favorite passage that teaches the eternal security of the believer. Look at this, John 10, 27. Jesus speaking, by the way, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them temporary life? No, it doesn't say that. (laughs) Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Praise God for the eternal security of the believer. If you're saved, you have eternal life. It starts the moment of salvation. (laughs) You can't lose it. You cannot get out of the Father's hand. It's impossible. Well, anyway, that's one of the interpretations that this passage is talking about. The second one is that some people think the situation is just purely hypothetical. Uh, So the text is referring to a situation that has never existed, and therefore it's a warning against a sin that's impossible to commit. I know, some of you think that's silly. But the problem with this view is that if, if it's a sin that can't be committed, isn't it absurd to offer this as an argument against falling to it? I think so. Anyway. Uh, another one that uh, I read about is some think the text is referring to a loss of reward for Christians. But notice verses 7 and 8. We'll get that to a moment. Verses 7 and 8 promise divine judgment. Really serious stuff. So this seems to involve a lot more than just a loss of reward. Now I'll explain verses 7 and 8 in a moment, but... Uh, I mean, it talks about its end is to be burned. Very serious stuff. And uh, the fourth view here is the one that I believe, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about these people who profess to be Christians, and he's urging them, hey, you know, I can't see your heart, but show the gen- show a genuine profession of faith by refusing to fall away from the faith. If someone perseveres to the end, the Scripture tells us that shows that their profession of faith was real. So the, re- the writer here spoke to the readers as Christians, since he can't evaluate their inward condition. He can't really, none of us can evaluate someone's heart. Only God can do that. But if the readers turn from Christ to Judaism, then of course it shows their profession of faith in Christ was not genuine. It was it was a false conversion. And so what does he do? He urges them, hey, show your real faith by enduring in your commitment to Christ. Don't give up on Christ. The readers have professed some experience. We just read about that. They had some experiences. But were they real? Was it genuine? If they turned away from Christ, then that desertion, that falling away... <clears throat> Shows they weren't real Christians to start with. They needed to understand the seriousness of what they're considering here. Very serious warning. That's why the text says, "It." it uh, notice verse four. The text says, "It is impossible to restore." It's impossible to restore those who fall away. Impossible. So these people who claim to have real experiences with Jesus need to understand experiences are not enough. The question is, does Jesus know you? Not do you have experiences. <laughs> right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about all these people who are, hey, Lord, Lord, look at all these experiences we've had. Look at all these things we've done in your name. And then Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So experiences aren't enough. Only their endurance with Jesus would then demonstrate that they have the real thing. They have genuine Christianity. Well, verse 6 goes on to show the consequences of just a a mere profession of faith. Verse 6 says, then, it talks about that then these people have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What's that talking about? Very serious consequences. It's a severe warning. In this verse, 
And by the way, it's applied only to these people who commit apostasy from Christ after they've experienced, uh, you know, they've, they've had an experience with the gospel, they've heard the gospel, they, they've had some influence from Christ, and then fall away. Okay, that's the people that this text is talking about. So the impossibility of restoration comes here because those who turn away from Christ are guiltify, or they're guilty of crucifying Christ. They're guilty of crucifying the Son of God over and over again. But they also hold Jesus up for public contempt. Terrible thing. And so the rejection of Christ after confessing Him, the Bible says is really an act of relentless hostility against Jesus Christ. So my friends, please understand. Please understand that God is willing and able to forgive all people who come to Him in genuine repentance. All people. I mean, there's plenty of examples of that. you got the thief on the cross next to Jesus. you got Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. Over and over again, people who, who, who were attacking Christ become true believers. And God forgives them because they're truly repentant. But they're... There are places in the Bible like this that have serious warnings. There are some human beings who have, who have resisted God's grace so much that they have hardened their hearts to a point where it, it, it's, it's beyond hope. Their cold, dead heart is never going to bow the knee to King Jesus. Their condition is actually described in Romans 1.28. Look at this. Romans 1.28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Right? So God says, okay, that's the way you want to be. I'll leave you to your own, you know, your own judgment, your own devices. And sadly, some people become so completely sinful that just God gives them up to their reprobate heart. And so Hebrews 6, verse 6 here, is presenting a strong warning to these willful sinners, habitual sinners, that can't... Hey, God's saying, don't expect there to come a time in the future where you can repent and come back. You cannot expect restoration to God after this adamant rejection of His grace and mercy. He has been very merciful and gracious. It doesn't mean that's going to continue forever. That's the warning. And so if you're having a hard time understanding this, the scriptures here in verses 7 and 8 give us an illustration. Now you farmers will love this, because verses 7 and 8 is using an agricultural illustration here to present a spiritual truth. It's a comparison between different kinds of soil and, and what's happening in that soil. Right, so here's the comparison. Number one, when the land is fruitful, it is blessed. When the land is fruitless, it's cursed. That, that's the basic idea here. Now, having a mother who is a farmer, growing up in a farming family, and, and having some friends who are farmers, I understand that farmers are a very funny group of people. They are. See, they have great expectations. I mean, you, you, you farmers, I mean, you go and buy equipment, you, you, you pay for heaps of seed, you spend all this time and this money putting seed in the ground, and you have expectations, don't you? You expect that the land is going to bring a crop. I mean, right? I mean, that's kind of obvious, duh, right? Why would you spend all that money on equipment and seed and put the seed in the ground to expect nothing to happen? Right? You, you do expect some maize to come up or chicory or something, right? You expect that. Fruitful soil responds to those conditions which God provides and, and God pr- produces the useful results. You do the work, but God gives you the results. But then on the other hand, you know what it's like with thorny ground, with gorse or thistles or whatever, right? Thorny ground shows that it's unworthy of God's blessing. What do you do with a field of weeds, a field of gorse, right? I've walked with a farmer friend of mine who 
must be a little pyromaniac because he just goes along lighting the gorse on fire and it's fun to watch it burn. That's what you do with gorse. You burn it. And that's what the text tells us here, right? Weeds are fit only for burning. And this is an illustration of final destruction. The analogy is applying here to the spiritual realm. If the land's fruitful, it's because God's blessing it. If the land's unfruitful, God's going to curse it. And so the image here of burning is suggesting this divine judgment is lays ahead for these people if they don't take heed to God's warning. So those who produce fruit are giving evidence that they're receiving God's blessing. Just like if you plant chicory and it comes up, or if you plant maize, it, it comes up and bears fruit. That only happened because God blessed it. <laughs> it wasn't because you're an awesome farmer, right? And so, so Christ's call here is to go and plow the fields of your heart. Plow the fields of your life. Make the soil tender so it's able then to receive the sweet rain. Well, we've talked about a very serious warning and some bad news. You say, well, you ready for the good news now? I hope you are, because this next passage here gives us confidence. It was meant to give these readers confidence that spiritual maturity is possible, right? It is possible. So here's the confidence of spiritual maturity. And the first thing the writer does here is is the writer instills confidence in these people. They've heard some hard words. These are hard words, aren't they? And notice notice how he instills confidence in verse 9. He, he Notice what he calls them, first of all. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. So he calls them beloved. That's the first thing he does. The idea is he's saying, hey, you are my dear friends. I've given you some hard words, but I love you. <laughs> you are my dear friends. And then in verse 9 there... He's confident that the things that characterize a real work of salvation are actually a part of their inner life as well as their outer life. And so the writer instills confidence. And he does this through several means. So what is in, what is he, how is he instilling confidence? What is it about these people that show they're real believers? <laughs> well, Verse 9 says, number one, it's the inner life. The inner life shows that you're a real believer and that you're, you're, you're headed towards spiritual maturity. Because verse 9 says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, the things that belong to salvation here are evidenced by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You say, where's that in the Bible? Well, this inner life is described in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit's a witness internally, that you are a child of God. Now, you're not born a child of God. You have to be adopted into His family. And when you are, the Holy Spirit bears witness that you're one of His. But it's not just the inner life that that is instilling confidence here. The outer life also instills confidence that you are moving towards spiritual maturity. Verse 9, again, the things that belong to salvation are witnessed by the, the graces of character that come from truly knowing Christ. See, if you have the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5 says you're going to have His fruit evidenced in your life, right? Love, joy, peace, so forth. So the Holy Spirit's going to bear that fruit in your life. Authentic Christian life produces authentic authentic Christian character. And then that character gives evidence that you're a believer. It instills confidence of spiritual maturity. Well, there's a third one mentioned here. Verse 10, it's your lifestyle. right? If you're real on the inner life, it's going to show in the outer life, and then it's not just going to be a a one-time thing, it's going to be a whole lifestyle. 
Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So what had the readers done here to make the writer confident that they were believers? Well, first of all, he mentions their work. See that? Verse 10. They had labored in Jesus' name, and their works included things like concern for other people, their righteous living, other Christian virtues, so forth. And then the other thing he points out, second, is he points out their love. They administered to other Christians. And then the text cites the justice of God. So in the face of all this evidence, the writer believed that God would take note, because he knows their love, he knows their works, and so God's going to take note of those things. He, he sees their works, he sees their love, he sees inside, he knows the heart. God knows. That's the justice of God. So the writer described what he wanted the readers to continue to do, and what he didn't want them to do as well. And so, in verses 11 and 12, the writers then ensured this confidence towards spiritual maturity. Now, how did he do it? Well, how did he do this? Number one, he says, don't be lazy. <laughs> right? He's already talked about being slow to learn, being dull of hearing, being spiritually lazy. So verse 12, he says, don't be lazy. Interesting word there in verse uh, in verse 12, he says, so that you may not be sluggish. <laughs> the word sluggish, might another word might come to your mind, the word slug, right? Slugs are slow, really slow, very slow, right? The, and that's kind of the idea. Hopefully you're thinking of a slug when you think of the word sluggish. It's a, it's a good image because slugs are very slow. And, and sluggish was used back in chapter 5, verse 11, to describe these people who are spiritually lazy, slow to learn. They were sluggish in the ears, specifically. Usually sluggish ears go with the sluggish, lazy lifestyle. <clears throat> and, and when the ear becomes dull, what, what often happens is everything else in your life follows. <laughs> so the ear becomes dull of hearing, and then guess what? The other stuff follows. Spiritual laziness is a danger that looms over all of us if you're not willing to work against it. You say, ah, oh, that's not me. I'm a, I'm a hard worker. Well, we're not talking physically here. All right? You can be a hard worker physically and still become lazy spiritually. All right? So, so don't equate the physical hard work with spiritual here. Spiritual laziness is a danger you all need to be aware of. You, you have to commit to not being spiritual lazy, spiritually lazy. It takes an act of your will to do this. Laziness is, is frankly, spiritual laziness is something that's in. Hard work is out. Especially when it comes to the matters of your own soul. Spiritual laziness is in. People don't want to work at their souls. Plenty of people work at the bodies, building muscles and so forth but they don't put in the effort for their spiritual soul. You say, well, how do I cure laziness? Well, Hebrews gives us two points to cure this spiritual laziness. And if you don't, if you're not going to be spiritually lazy, the, what's the opposite? you got to work. you got to work at this. Verse 11 tells you to work because it says, We desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't give up. Keep working. Show this diligence to the very end. So those who work at their faith, you're accomplishing something. Notice the text says you're making your hope sure. And God's clear that nobody can be saved by works. Of course, that doesn't save you. But it's clear here that saving faith does work. Right? A genuine faith works. A dead faith doesn't. So diligence is good, but it has to have the right focus. And so the focus of this diligence here involves imitation. You have an example to follow. You have a lot of examples to follow in Scripture. And you say, well, what am I supposed to imitate? Well, in this text, it specifically says, number two, how to cure your laziness. You work and you imitate faith and patience. Imitate faith and patience. So who are we supposed to imitate? Well, specifically in this context, 
it's Abraham, because verse 13 mentions Abraham. But verse 12 says, But be an imitator of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So Abraham inherited the promises of God because of faith. And he was patient. It took a long time, right? God said, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham's thinking, hmm, really? When's that going to happen? Year after year goes by. And eventually he gets to be 100 years old, and I'm sure by then 100 years old, right? Okay, is this ever going to happen? It did, eventually. (laughs) He inherited God's promises. took a long time. He needed a lot of faith and patience. And God's saying, imitate Abraham's faith and patience. You say, what's faith? Is it blind faith? Some people think of it as kind of a blind leap in the dark. Well, what is it? Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this. Look at this. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not real. This is God's reality we're talking about here. So faith means the ability to take hold of the unseen. It assumes the promises of future blessing as your own. So when God makes a promise, you claim it, say God doesn't lie, He's going to do it. Just like Abraham, God told promises to Abraham. took a long time to come to fruition, but it happened. So imitate that faith. Lay hold of the unseen. Assume these promises as your own. God says it, it's going to happen. But you're also supposed to imitate patience. You say, what's that? Well, that's the state of emotional calm. Even in the face of provocation or misfortune... And you do it without complaint. You do it without irritation. That's someone who's patient. Now to the persecuted church here, that was taking place here in the book of Hebrews, here's the message that God had for them. It's the same message He has for you. God says, fix your eyes in faith on this great unseen reality. It's an unseen, heavenly reality. You haven't seen it yet, but it's real, and you're going to get there. There is a city whose maker is God. You haven't seen it yet, but you'll get there. (laughs) So fix your eyes in faith on this great unseen, heavenly reality. It, It awaits you. You have to do it with patience. You do it with diligence. If you do this, the text says, then you're making your hope sure. You're becoming spiritually mature. And you have great hope when you do this. And so the text tells us the the cure for laziness is faith on the unseen realities. Faith on the unseen realities. It's the only thing that's going to cure your spiritual laziness. (laughs) It's going to wake you up. It's going to keep you moving with endurance to the end diligently moving forward toward heaven, toward Christ. Because you you haven't seen Christ physically, but you know He's there, and you're going to keep moving toward Him. Because you, you are faithful. So my friends, God wants you to be spiritually mature. The warning is spiritual immaturity. And we all have the potential to drift and to start to doubt God's Word and you become dull of hearing, slow of learning. You become spiritually lazy. But God's given you the cure. He's told you the problem. He's told you the cause. He's told you how you can get out of the mess. He's given you this call towards spiritual maturity. Now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with these words? So my friend, if you're already spiritually mature... Don't ever allow yourself to drift. That's the starting point. Don't take your hands off the oar. Don't take your hands off the wheel. Keep moving toward God. If you are spiritually immature and you find yourself, well, hey, I I, I see myself here in this text. There's this danger of me going backwards because I'm drifting. I have taken my hands off the wheel. I've stopped rowing. I'm doubting God's word and I've become dull of hearing. I'm spiritually lazy. 
My friend, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin yet. Okay? (laughs) There is hope for you. There is still hope. You're still alive. You're still breathing. Right? But you need to take this seriously and do what God wants you to do. You need to repent. You need to put your faith in Christ. Do what He wants you to do here. Recognize your sin and repent of it. Those of us who are spiritually mature need to keep our eyes open for those who are in danger. Who are already maybe spiritually mature. Help them out. Because this is serious stuff. Their eternal soul is at stake. So may God enable us to be spiritually mature. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this warning passage here. Thank you for the whole book of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit who gave this to us. May we understand. May, may we not be dull of hearing, but may we have ears to hear, hearts that are soft and ready to receive the Word of God. May we apply where it needs to be applied, help those that need the help, watch out for other others who are in danger, who are falling back. May they not permanently fall away. May we help them, bring them to spiritual maturity in Christ. May we be people who are able to understand these great truths about Melchizedek. May we get off the spiritual couch, not drift, not doubt, not become dull of hearing. We ask for you to enable us this to happen because it's only by your grace it's going to give us this power, this enabling, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.